This is the best, most fun I have ever, ever, ever had on a podcast. This is a hit. I'm Jesse Cole, your host of Business Done Differently, where we get to meet successful people who look at business differently, and we get to know them in a different way. It may be us as the leaders of the organization who believe we know who we're serving and why it matters, but the team doesn't know that. And if the team doesn't know it, the team doesn't feel it, and if the team doesn't feel it, it might as well not be happening. And I think this is a huge, huge problem most businesses done is they don't understand their mission. They don't understand what they stand for and they don't talk about it. Today's guest is the one and only Don Yeager. Don is an award-winning keynote speaker, 11-time New York Times best-selling author, including two books that have become huge favorites of our staff here with the Bananas, Great Teams and Teammates. The former, in my opinion, may be one of the best books out there on building an amazing culture and a successful organization. I was blown away and immediately shared with our staff and wrote Don a quick note, and that's how we got connected and we're here today. Don has sat on the front row with great leaders his entire life, and he's witnessed some of the greatest moments and greatest champions of all time. Today, we're going to dive in on the habits and the DNA that makes great performers stand out. Don, welcome to Business Done Differently. Jesse, thank you so much. What an honor to be uh to be a banana for a day. <laughs> well, we will, we'll have to get you a banana suit because I think you could rock that. It's, it's actually funny. We, have, we sell them at our banana stand here at the stadium. And some games we have 50 to 100 people in banana costumes watching a baseball game, which is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> but we're, we're not going to talk it. too much about the bananas. I want to know this great teams concept. I want to know, like, why were, why were you so fascinated in the great teams to do so much research and talk to people that have been a part of them? So um, I, I retired, uh, you, you and I have kind of shared some of this, but I retired from Sports Illustrated um, coming up on 10 years ago uh, this fall. Um, they offered an early retirement package for those of us who've been there for 10 years or more. And I, I had the opportunity and took, a, um, took the buyout. And, and in that process, um, I began uh, speaking to organizations and companies about individual high performance, what I'd learned from working with um, uh, John, Michael Jordan, uh, John Wooden, uh, Walter Payton, just the great winners of our lifetime, right? Some of the best winners of our lifetime. What did they teach me about individual high performance? And, and the company that probably hired me the most often um, was Microsoft. And one of their executives grabbed me at the end of a speech one day uh, and said, you know, we love this. We love talking about how do we get the most from ourselves. But, but what I'm really fascinated by is why, why are some teams able to be regularly relevant, successful all the time when most teams rise and fall? Like what is it about, what is it about the best teams that separates them from everybody else? And I thought, what a great concept. What a great, what a neat next generation conversation for me. So I began writing down the teams I'd want to study. And I figured, you know, we'll start with sports. I have access to a lot of sports teams. So what what teams, if they were to, to, to let me peek under the hood and spend some time kind of learning uh, the mechanics of what they do, what, what would be the teams that I would want to learn from? And I built a list, and I just started reaching out to them. And, 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 over, the, and over, the, over the course of the next five years, I went to 110 of those teams um, 
throughout North America uh, just to sit down and and learn. And their big trade-off, most of them, was do us a favor. When you figured out what you're learning, would you please just come back and share it with us or, or send us – send us what you're learning from other people because that's how we're going to keep getting better. And that became my journey. It was pretty awesome. You know, it's so fascinating because it's really talking about sustained excellence because you'll have teams that are great, even businesses. I mean, I still think back. I mean, you had Toys R Us and Blockbuster and Sears and Circuit City. I mean, the, the list of businesses that are now in the cemetery is unbelievable, but they were the best at their game and they lost it. But you, you mentioned John Wood and what he did with UCLA and now you got to think now the Patriots for 16, 17 years, what they're doing. It's so rare. And I think that's so interesting in your book. You, you give an example of a sports team or sports individuals and then a business. But I'm sure, Don, it's something that everyone is trying to find out this, the secret sauce. Yeah, it's, you make a really great point that's, that's fascinating. So Pete Carroll, uh, when he and I were talking about uh, trying to create – it's the same excellence in um, uh, in Seattle as, he, as they've been taken as they took off for a bit. Um, he actually had a great line. He said, "One of the great predictors of failure uh, is success. Mm-hmm. The people who have success, uh, you know, on the Mike Ditka used to say, on, on the way to the top, it's all about we, and when you get to the top, it's all about me, right?" Uh, everybody in the building suddenly thinks they need a pay raise or that they deserve more or they, or they're not getting enough credit or this or that on the way to the top. It's all about we, and once we get to the top, it's all about me. And that's why sustaining excellence is so difficult because you have, it takes a unique set of, um, of characters, of characteristics, takes a unique communication skill to let people, to remind people that what got us to the top won't sustain us. Uh, unless we remain as diligent as we were on the way there. Mm. It's like, well, what got you here won't necessarily get you there. That was another great book. And, you know, I think about this we over me concept. After our second year here with the Bananas, Don, we sold we sold that every game, and we decided to let every one of our staff members dictate their own salary. And it was crazy. You know, imagine millennials, 22, 23, 24 years old, coming up with their own salary. I mean, we saw 25% bumps, 30% bumps. We said yes to it. And it was interesting while we said yes to that, the business just kept taking off because once they figured out, hey, we're in this together, as crazy as that sounds, it even worked even more. And now we're going into a profit sharing system. But, you know, you could see that drive. Hey, we've sold out every game. The team must be rolling in it. I want to get mine. And luckily, we've been able to train that, that that's not the best way to be successful. Wow. Well, you are... Um if, if I had a 111th slot uh, to interview for the book, it would have been you. <laughs> Good luck. You get a lot of crazy things in that book. But, I, you know, I want to go into, Don, the, you had 16 traits that great companies, great teams, great businesses have. I want to get into five of those. But for, first, I want to get into something debatable, Don. I want to have some fun here. It's this team versus family concept. And what I, I noticed in the book, which is great, I, I've studied Netflix a lot. Netflix, they pride themselves. They said, we're not a family. We're a team. We're not a family. However, when you interview Dayton Moore from the Kansas City Royals, which had some great success over the last five, ten years, he said, our secret is caring more for our players. It's caring more for everyone. Caring for people like a family. They believe in this family concept, but you got a great company like Netflix says, we're not a family. We're a team. Where do you kind of, you know, where do you fit in that category? What do you think's best? Well, I, I think, you know, um, 
it's it's funny that you say this because I actually was sitting and thinking of a blog that I'm going to write this you know uh, soon um, as I'm watching kind of the NBA uh, the NBA free agent market play out and you know some players saying gosh you know where's you know uh, they, they 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 say we're a family but the second there's a business deal to be made you know we uh, they make the business deal um, I. So I believe that that we are a team at work. Um, I, I, as a father of two, and uh, you know, as a husband, I, I believe there's a higher standard I owe to my family, um, and I love the people that I work with, and I want to give them everything I can. But um, they never right, and so I think. But as a team. Is to think about the greatest interest of the collective, right? To be so, I appreciate what Dave Moore was saying, and what he was saying was, uh, and I love part of that interview was he said that he one of his standards for adding new talent to the roster was, is this somebody I'd want to have dinner with my that I would let spend the evening with my children, right? Um, and so he was actually truly applying family into the equation. Um, I, I want to I, I do think there's a, a, a line that has to exist uh, between um, between family and team and for me I my my job at home is to be a protector of you know of those folks and, and make sure that but my job at work is to be is to look out for the and sometimes those are those require really tough conversations really difficult choices. Um, that don't feel very family-like, mm. and so I do think I do think that um, uh, I'm probably more likely to fall into the Netflix category and say I see the two two pieces of the equation, and I don't know uh, that I would want to mix the two up. Mm. I, I can see. That. I think it's fascinating for people listening, the business owners out there. You know, would you describe your your company as a team or a family? Because I can see both sides. For us, we call it the fans' first family. And we're not afraid to say love. You know, I believe you should love your customers more than you love your product, but love your employees more than you love your customers. And we say totally it. agree. And, 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 I totally think, agree. and I think, you know, accountability is the sincerest form of love. And you've got to hold your people accountable. And sometimes you can be a parent, a father, a mother, and tell, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. Maybe this isn't a good fit. Find another job, as crazy as that sounds. Um, so it is that balance. But I, I do think, how much did you hear the word love come up in your interviews? A lot. Did you? It's actually a really, um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting piece of, you know, of the, of the business equation of these really most successful is that they do believe that, that there's that combination, both of, of, of loving the people you get a chance to be, to, to have in your circle, because we spend more time with them often yeah. than we spend with our family, right? Uh, but then secondly, that, that, that understanding that, and I, I think that's really powerful what you said, like love your, love your, uh, love your customers. Um, and then on top, but, but more than that, love the people that, that, that you're asking to serve them. And, uh, uh, so yes, love big piece of it, but I, I, it's funny cause I'm, I've never been asked that question. So as I'm answering it, I'm struggling a little bit, but I, but I think I properly represent where, where my mind is. If it came down to a, 
a feeling. I, I just, I do believe my team here, my team here, who I love, mm. um, and who I would dearly give nearly everything for. I just, I can't call them family quite the same way because I know what family looks like, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. For me. Well, and I just found out. I just had a. Uh... Uh, May 4th, I had my first baby, a little boy named Maverick. And I, I get it. It's a whole different thing. And the reality is, like, your book's not called Great Families. It's Great Teams. Maybe you just build family into the great teams in portions yeah. of it. So that's probably what it is. But I, I, I want to jump into I want to jump into some segments of the book that I absolutely love. And you know, the name of the show, Don, is Business Done Differently. So I got to go yes. with the first one. Great teams speak a different language. I love that. And you tell some great stories about Coach Carroll and Walt Disney. Can you kind of explain how you came up with this concept and maybe some stories that fit in here? Well, so um, so with Coach, the, this one really came. I understood how coaches, the best leaders that I was studying, I, I was watching how they um, how they they inspired differently, but I wasn't sure exactly how to make it. Uh, makes sense until I was in Seattle, until I was there watching Coach Carroll do his thing with his roster. And and I was trying to look for what was different about the way they communicated. And then and and it was one of his assistants who said, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, he believes that the best speak a different language. And I thought, wow, that it sounds interesting. But but I, how do I translate that? It came down to I watched it on the sidelines one day. A wide receiver went out, and he um, and he, and he uh, you know dropped a pass when it came out. Now, um, in most environments, most especially athletic environments, that wide receiver comes to the sideline and somebody's yelling at him. Where, where's your mind? What were you thinking? What was up? What? Um, but in Seattle, he specifically makes it a, a leadership discussion with his assistants. We're going to assume that no wide receiver that wants to keep his job ever drops a pass intentionally, right? So instead of saying, what's up with you? What's the matter with you? What, what, what were you thinking? We're going to remind them of the principles we talked about that will help them be successful. We're going to remind them of some, and, and we're going to just effectively, we're going to, we're going to try to inspire them instead of berate them. We're going to try to teach them as opposed to, uh, um, as, as opposed to just drag them along. And as I watched it happen out on the, on the field, I watched and players just react differently when you intentionally speak to them, in what is a, a different leadership language. And then I went to Utah and I watched Quinn Snyder do it at the jazz. And I went to, um, and I went to golden state, saw Steve Kerr do it in with the worst. And I started, and I just started realizing more and more leaders, especially as the team we're leading, um, like yours, Jesse is, you know, loaded with millennials. They're learning how to, um, how to inspire them differently than I didn't, you know, so I'm 55 years old. So I, I grew up and coaches yelled at me and <laughs> parents yelled at me and everybody seemed to yell at me. And, you know, in my generation, that was kind of what everybody did. And you were okay with it, I guess. Right. Did, did they get the best for me? I'm not sure, but I'm watching people get the best of others right now. 
and they're doing it by 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 assuming initially you had you you let's start with the premise that you didn't come to screw up and that's different than the way a lot of people communicate unfortunately in the same age yeah it's different than the, the bobby knights back in the day and you know i just started laughing because i was picturing when i was 16 years old my aau coach came up to me and said hey jesse don't suck tonight and i was like well okay all right i'll try not to suck it's a different a different type of coaching now but it's unbelievable because if you catch people doing things right and when they do things wrong, it's a teaching moment, not, you know, really targeting them saying, what were you thinking? What were you doing? How dare you do that? It's more, hey, this is what we'd like to see happen. If, if you create that environment, then what you notice is everyone starts responding to it. Totally. And, and it's funny because as I started this conversation or as I started writing and I decided that that was actually a habit that I saw developing more and more because it was made evident to me. Um, then I started realizing I, how foolish it was of me to assume, well, that's a habit that would certainly react, would be reacted well to by those in the millennial generation. Yes, that's true. But why wouldn't we, wouldn't we all love to be talked to that way? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It, it just seems, and I think now people have to be aware of it because, you know, you've got millennials, they're leaving a job every 13 months. That's the statistic right now. People are leaving jobs every 2.2 years throughout their whole life. It's not where you could talk to someone like that and they're going to stay there for 10, 20, 30 years. You need to be aware of it. And it sounds like Coach Carroll is aware of it. Um, you also I mentioned something about Oakland University and this stood out for me, the Yellow Brick Road. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Greg Campy, who's the head coach there, one of my favorite people um, in all of sports. Uh, yeah, just... You know what he what the way that he was trying to, to teach his players, you know, was the the idea that that when you watch the um, you know when you watch the Wizard of Oz, bad things happen when you live when you leave the Yellow Brick Road, right? And so uh, he shows them all the movie, the players' movie. Most of them have never heard of it, um, and uh, shows them the movie. It talks about the idea that bad things happen, and then what he does is he gives each one of them. Um, as freshmen, a uh, yellow brick. And, you know, that's their goal is to constantly be reminded that don't leave. Here's what the yellow brick road looks like, right? Yellow brick road means, um, you know, we treat each other this way. We speak to each other respectfully. We, you know, you, you talk about your team standards, but that's your yellow brick road. Bad things happen when you leave it. Bad things happen. And then at the end, as, as his players are graduating or they're leaving, uh, to go to the, the NBA, and he does for a mid-major. He puts players in the NBA cra- at a crazy rate. Um, he actually has they get to present back to the team their yellow brick, and they all, they sign it and they write some lesson they learned on it. And he actually has a wall in the locker room built of these bricks uh, of players from the past, which allows each one of them to pass on to the next generation this concept that we are, um, you know. We're, we're all there is a there's a there's a pattern out there that has led those before us um, to uh, to success. Let's learn from what they've what they can teach us. And uh, let's let's not. But bad things happen when you leave the yellow brick road. I, again, I love it when coaches try to find really creative and unique ways to make their point and and leave these kid leave, leave these athletes, especially kind of scratching your head going, wow, we've never thought of that. It's pretty awesome. Well, you're building a tradition of what matters most, of what you stand for. And I thought about that. Obviously, you know, I love yellow, everything yellow with the bananas and the yellow tucks. So I'm like, could we actually build the yellow brick road coming into the stadium 
where not only just our staff, but our fans are a part of it. You know, I think the concept of yellow bricks is you're building something together. And I was like, right. I was like, it's brilliant. I was like, we should have a yellow brick road that comes into the stadium that our staff's a part of, our fans are a part of, everyone's in this together. So you may see next year, Don, we'll have a yellow brick road. It's inspired uh, from your book. And I think the great thing, Don, is it goes back into kind of all these different language. It's about your purpose. And, you know, my number two trait that really stood out for me is great teams understand their why. And I think this is a huge, huge problem with most businesses, Don, is they don't understand their mission. They don't understand what they stand for, and they don't talk about it. And right. when you shared the Team USA story about Mike Krzyzewski and how he brought them together, I was like, every business should have a moment and a visual like that to get everyone on the same page. Yeah, no, it's, and so just for your listeners, I'll just, I'll, I'll try to tell that story real quickly. Um, but it's, you know, when Coach K took over USA Basketball, um, one of the things that he discovered was that the team, uh, he, he believes that any roster of any, of any organization, right? So it doesn't matter if it's a basketball team, a, um, a business, uh, or a, um, uh, a baseball team, right? That every, uh, collection of, of folks can be divided essentially into two buckets. Uh, the first bucket are your, are your patriots, right? Those people that believe in what you're doing. They want to be part of it. They think it's important. The second bucket are your mercenaries. Those are the people that are working for you until somebody offers them 25 cents more, right? And that if you want to build a great team, you need a team that's loaded with patriots, right? You need people who believe in what you're doing. But the problem for most of us, as you said, is that most of us aren't, aren't really well defined. What are we doing? Who are we serving? Why does it matter? And even if we are, the challenge is that it may be us as the leaders of the organization who believe we know who we're serving and why it matters. But the team doesn't know that. And if the team doesn't know it, the team doesn't feel it. And if the team doesn't feel it, it might as well not be happening, right? Why does what we do matter? Who does it matter to? What happens if we fail? And so, and then how do we feel it? How do we take it from a, a website page uh, or a poster at the entrance of, uh, you know, a successory poster at the entrance of our of our uh, facility? And how do we turn it into um, something that per, that's pervasive, that actually, you know, courses through the veins of those who work with us? And then when you can make that feel it moment, so Coach K, one of those that worked for him, was he started taking and introducing wounded warriors to the basketball team. And saying, by the way, these guys, they wear the letters USA on their jersey too, right? These are your teammates. These are This is who you're playing for, right? Don't, when you go out to play the world, remember, you're representing them just as you're representing you. Don't, you know, don't, don't screw, yeah, to, to use your, your coach, don't screw it up, right? But, but the point being that now they were feeling that they were actually doing something bigger than just playing basketball. And it's, it's, it's all about that. I, I mean, I remember, you know, at games when fans will come up to me, you know, this, this gentleman came up to me after a game and gave me a huge hug and he said, my mother and I haven't talked for years, but your games brought us back together and we sit together and now watch every game. She's never wanted to watch baseball, but she absolutely loves the players dancing and everything. You brought our relationship together. I felt that. And I think the challenge, Don, a lot of times is the CEOs, the managers, the top dogs get to feel it. But you want to make sure that the, the janitors, the lowest people on your staff get to feel it. 
and it's Shisevsky's figure this out. And I wonder in other examples, like, is it, you know, where we bring in these fans and we actually have them speak to our, our, our team and, you know, and, and get emotional sharing the impact that our games have made so they can actually be a part of it. Yeah, and, and that's it, right? So there's a, there's intention there. You have to bring somebody in. You have to do something. You have to make it happen. I'm going to give you one quick example. Um, so I have I, I get the chance uh, to serve on the national board of my favorite charity, the Make a Wish Foundation. Yes. And, um, and and in fact, I leave this week. Our, uh, we have a board meeting in, in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, but and and so you think about it. Is there a a more it's a more purpose-driven organization on the planet. I don't know for me, right? I mean, we know what our purpose is. We are here to create uh, wish opportunities for children and their families who are facing life-threatening illnesses, pretty powerful stuff. And yet, because this is such an important issue, we begin every meeting and not just board meetings, but like board phone calls, right? We begin everything we do with what's called a mission moment which means the first few minutes of the call or the meeting is occupied by a family or a story about a family and a child whose wish we granted and how the granting of that wish changed the dynamic of their family. Powerful. Now, at the end of that five minutes, you could ask me to give you my left arm and I would, right? You'll run through a wall. Because I feel who we're serving, and I can't wait to do more of it. The challenge, as you said, is that we have out there way too many places where organizationally, leadership-wise, we know where what we do matters. But we don't take the time to say, how do we get everybody else in the team to feel it? It could be as simple as introducing, as you said, that man who gets to say, my mom and I. Get a chance, got a chance to reconnect around your baseball games. Now, that doesn't make you want to show up to work differently. There's something wrong with you, right? Yeah. And so it's that's the that's the awesome piece of what you're doing there. It's also the awesome piece of these great teams that know how to build this concept into what they do. And the best ones do it. They do it well. And it's just it to me. It was the one big standout conversation that I heard over and over and over again. The best teams don't just know their why because that's cool, right? It sounds awesome. They feel their why. They don't just say it. They don't just write it down. They feel it and make everyone around them feel it. And I think it's so important that you know great leaders are repeatable, and they will say and do the same things over and over again that people will actually copy them. And I would I would be feel great if everyone is copying the, the, the mission that we share over and over and over again. So I think that was brilliant. I think everyone could do that better. I, I want to keep moving because I just there were 16, Don. I could have gone through all 16. I'm trying to keep it to five here. I'm doing my best. But uh, Culture Club, I love culture. Great teams allow culture to shape recruiting. And you talked about starting with A players. They're four times as productive as average employees. You know, I read that great book about container store as well. And he says one great person equals three good people. You know, you talk about Herb Brooks and some other examples. You know, you don't need the best players. You need the right players. What stood out for you in trying to bring in this A team? Well, so the first thing that really stood out when trying to build this, and it kind of, because all this comes together, and that's what, that's what's beautiful about, you know, a strong team, is that, um, the best teams know what um, know what great ones look like, yeah. right? They know um, and they know what works within their environment. So 
Um, I use as an example when I talk about this, uh, again, it would be foolish of me. I own a couple of small companies in Tallahassee, Florida, um, you know, 60 employees. It would be foolish of me to go out and do all this research and study and not come back and apply it into my own business. Yeah. Um, but a couple of years ago, I sat down at our staff retreat. We go away for a couple of days every every November on usually uh, on a cruise, cool like that. And I asked the staff, I asked the team to actually write down for me what it means. So what is what is what works in our environment? What is our culture really established around? What are the things that um, that that we say and live? Right. So not just say and and post, but things we say and live and what gets you promoted here, what gets you fired? Right? What's our culture? And then what happened was they created this 10 point document. And it's kind of interesting. Back to our first question. Uh, number one on our list of what matters in our company is family first. Yeah. So it's funny. Right. Um, and the reason we say that is because we believe everybody in here, forget the work environment. Everybody here has a family. And it's really important to me that if you tell me, um, you you should know that I want your family to come first. So if your little girl's not feeling well and I need you here for a really important meeting, I'd rather you be with your little girl, right? Um, and we'll figure out the meeting. And if you say that and then you live it, they think differently about working for you because most places reverse that. Reverse that. And like, man, can you get your husband to stay with your little girl? Because I need you to be here. Right? And we try, we reverse it enough that it become, it's become number one on our culture list. But what happened was when they built this list, you know, some things were, we don't, we're not big enough to micromanage you. If you need micromanaging, you won't work here very well or for very long. And so as we began in the time since then, when we've had a couple of openings, I use that document to say, this is what works here according to them, right? And if, if you look at this and you realize, you know what, I, I, that, I don't know, maybe that all doesn't really work for me, do us both a favor and um, let's realize that you probably are not a fit for us. And then we ask certain questions in the interview process to tell us, will they fit the standards that we already know exist and work within our business. So we almost don't look at resumes anymore. <laughs> we don't either. We only ask, we ask for future resumes and we have them do a future resume, a video cover letter so we can see their personality and how they fit to the fans first way, our core beliefs. That's it. We don't look at their, their former resume because again, future, it's not what they've done the future. What are they going to do? Future resume. I've never heard that before. That's awesome, Jesse. I love that. Well, we can see because two of our big words in our fans' first way is hungry and growing. So by the future resume, if they say they're going to be in the same position for the next five to ten years, that's showing they don't think big. They don't want to grow. They're not hungry. I like people to say I'm going to be running events for the entire world in five years for you know Disney or top. You know that inspires us because like all right, great, you're in the right place to be. Um, but no, I think Don, what you're doing, the more you talk about the culture. The more you share it, the more you will attract similar mind people. I, I've started posting lots of videos on LinkedIn talking about fans first, and we're getting more people reach out to us. We're not even hiring right now because they want to be a part of that. You don't necessarily want people with skills. You want people to believe what you believe. Absolutely. Which are, and so, no, I think that you fit it right on the head. That that's a big um, that's a big piece of it because, uh, you know, if you really – you recruit to your culture – 
you don't recruit just because of some, because one of the great mistakes I've found in working with a lot of these businesses was that, you know, they're sitting there going, gosh, well, look at this person just crushes it and they work for our competitor. Imagine the double whammy. We get them and the competitor loses them. How awesome is that? <laughs> but if the competitive culture that exists on the other side of that, of that equation is so different from yours, what you may ultimately realize is that they, they will be a complete failure in your operation. So a lot of a lot of uh, podcasts have sponsors. We sometimes have games. I'm going to go into a stat time as kind of our little break here, Don. It's from your book, Stat. Millennials, 64% want to make the world a better place. 79% want a boss who will be a mentor. 88% value collaboration over competition. And 88% seek world work-life integration. And knowing what they're thinking about, understanding them, and hiring great people, you never have to manage. And I think those stats really show a lot. Wow. Yeah. It's um, that, that what stood out to me when I looked at those stats the first time I saw them was that um, when you ask them what they're really looking for, sixth on the list was pay. Mm. Um, you know, again, you didn't really experience that because they all wanted 25% raises. But we start law um, in the sports industry, Don, though. Let's be honest. It wasn't, we're not now making $100,000. <laughs> but no, what I love about it was when you start understanding the, and, and again, it's difficult to get to be overly general when we're talking about a generation or whatever. But if at the end of the day, what you're really saying is here's, you know, what they, what they want, what they want to be part of is something bigger than themselves. That's where that concept of not just knowing your why, but making sure they know why being with you, being part of what you're doing is bigger than what they could do if they were across the street working for somebody else. 100%. If you can make them feel that, if you can make them feel that, they come to work different and they come to work longer for you than other people. It's a win-win. I want to go to two more traits. Uh, and this one, this one's going to surprise you, Don, of all the ones, but great teams run successful huddles. I'm fascinated by this because every business is having meetings out there, and I guarantee them uh, 90% of the people don't want to be a part of those meetings. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how much people think meetings are the worst. And you shared the study from UNC Charlotte that 37% of meetings begin late by an average of 15 minutes. There's a problem with meetings and quote-unquote huddles out there. Share kind of what, what you saw from you know, Coach Bill Walsh and the Patriots, some of the great examples you gave about running great huddles. So what fascinated me about this, because I could, look, I've worked in a lot of businesses, too, that have and hate, where everybody hates meetings. Like, you know, the second a meeting shows up, everybody groans. So the question is, why are some – and what I learned was that these great teams made running successful huddles a focus. So it wasn't just a, – a meeting wasn't just something you had to do. A meeting was something done – um, it was done with purpose. It was done with uh, it was done with uh, pace. Uh, there was there was a way to draw everyone into it. There was a everybody knew what the point of the meeting was from the beginning. Um, and most importantly, and this was the piece that really grabbed me, was that the best of these understood that in every meeting you either need to be fully present or fully absent. Right? That if you are a um, if you're there and you don't want to be there and you want to be checking your email or you or you think checking out Twitter or Instagram is more important than what's happening in the conversation, leave the room. 
And um, because that means you're not fully present anyway and something really incredible could happen and you would miss it. And the rest of the world wouldn't understand why you missed it because you were in the meeting, right? And so the more I learned about how what focus the best teams put into running successful huddles, the more I realized that alone right there, Jesse, is a game changer in business. If we can run better meetings, the best teams look at a, a well-run meeting as, as a strategic advantage of their competitors. 100%. Share, you know, what, what, what Bill Walsh and uh, you know, the 49ers and, and Joe Montana, you know, did that. I thought that was very different from recording the meetings to how you take control and discipline. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, they actually, so they, I mean, they actually, on the first day of training camp, they practiced their huddle. Think about that, right? You know, they practiced coming off the sideline. They, they practiced a play ending and everybody having to get in a huddle. Um, and, and how does communication work? Where are you supposed to, what, and what is your, what is your contribution to this meeting? What do I expect from you as a contributor to this meeting? Um, one of the things that, 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 that uh, Montana was pretty famous for was, you know, how often do we come to a meeting and two people decide to use that as a moment in which to argue about something, right? Um, and, uh, and it happens in football huddles just like it happens in your meetings in your office. And what Montana used to look at them and say is, look, uh, you know, take that to the parking lot. Deal with that in the parking lot after the game. Right now we have something to do, and here's what we're here to do. So um, just the conceptually, the big picture that was so that was so amazing to me was how the best teams run the best huddles, right? Montana believed that now, again, today, nobody runs a huddle anymore in the NFL. But back in the day when they did, he believed their huddles were so efficient, it gave him two to three seconds more. They were leaving the huddle earlier, which gave him two to three seconds of additional time to make adjustments and, uh, and, and actually create an advantage for himself because his huddles were so well run. I mean, again, the idea of practicing huddles is one. It, it reminded me of thinking of Coach Wooden and practicing, how, you know, how you put on your shoes and tie your shoes. It's it's the fundamentals that go into it, and no one's practicing that. And I was thinking about this, like if we recorded meetings, actually put a video camera, and not only recorded the person speaking in the beginning, but everyone else, and say, look, you're not fully present. You shouldn't be in that meeting. Look, you know, you're not you're you're fully absent. Get out of the meeting. I, I think that's that's a brilliant concept and. Uh, no, I, I, out of all the 16, I was like, this is such a practical thing you can look at. And I don't know if you're familiar with Cameron Harold, uh, his book, Meetings Suck. He says, end every meeting five minutes early and cut the meeting in half of what you originally thought you needed. And I thought that was a pretty interesting concept as well. Yeah. To your point, though, about recording him, I think it's it, – I, I, I know this example is in the book. Coach K at Duke actually started having his uh, trainers record – um, you know, uh, rec a video record how the team is participating in meetings. And he actually grades his players, not just on their behavior on the court, but on the behavior during meetings. Are they leaning in? Are they, are they paying attention? Are they looking around? Are they, uh, what's their body language like? Um, he, he grades athletes on their participation in the, one, in the meetings that he holds uh, spontaneously throughout the game. Oh, I love that. You remind me, we actually have for our game day staff, you know, our part-time staff that works the concession stands and everything around the ballpark, we conduct group interviews and we have two people on our staff conducting them and we have them all around in a circle 
And one of those per people that are interviewing is watching everyone else while one person is answering the question. And if people aren't paying attention to that person answering the question, they're not going to get a job because they show they're not a team player and they don't care about others. I love it. Man, gosh, I'm, I'm going to quit my job and come to work for you. <laughs> We'd have a lot of fun, Todd. we got to get you up here. But all right, I want to keep rolling. The last one here on, the, on the, the five that really stood out, and it goes into the beginning as well, great teams have a roadmap. And I was fascinated by Nick Saban and, and what he's done, obviously, to Alabama, but not focusing on the outcome but focusing on the process. I'd love to see like what you've seen between sports and business. You know, what does that look like? Well, it's, it's, an, it's actually, uh, it's the one that's probably most difficult for me to communicate well with businesses because, um, almost every business really does believe that their roadmap is a profit and loss statement, right? That's how we're going to define uh, a good year, bad year. It's going to be all about P and L and, um, and, and while, a profit is an important piece of your roadmap, right? You cannot, you cannot get to stay very long on the road if you run out of cash. Um, it doesn't. It, it cannot be the only map that tells you whether you're headed in the right direction or not. So the best teams are uh, like Nick Saban's and John Wooden's and these, you know, these great coaches and leaders who share. They don't. They don't begin the year by saying, oh, you know, we should be playing for the national championship. What they begin the year by saying is we should be committed uh, today to being better than we were yesterday. Now, were we? Uh, at the end of the day, can we honestly uh, assess ourselves and say that we improved and that the roadmap and here are, your, here are the pieces. And every one of these coaches had different roadmaps of their own, but, I'll, but they had ways in which they said – these are the standards we want to hold ourselves to. These are the ways we want to be measured. And if we do these things, and if we live to these standards, and if we measure ourselves um, with high levels of accountability against these standards, the wins will take care of themselves. The championships will happen, as you're experiencing. The sold-out stadiums will occur. All these things will happen, but we have to know that this and, and it, you know, that this is the this is the real roadmap. Right? And what confuses some people is that they're like, oh, but we, you know, what, you know, what happens if we do all of those things and we're not successful? I, I happen to believe, as does Coach Saban and many others, you almost can't do all of those things if you've created the right roadmap. You can't do all of those things and not be successful. Right. 100%. And you share in the book to Cheryl Bouchelder, Cheryl Bouchelder, who wrote the group book, uh, Dare to Serve, about Popeyes. So she has a roadmap to results. And I love sharing Mark Zuckerberg, how he shares the roadmap with all the employees. As big as Facebook is, all the employees get to see the roadmap. If the roadmap is just in the head of a CEO, founder, or manager, good luck making sure your company gets there. So I, I thought that was fascinating, Don. And I've been grilling you for a while, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the chance to grill me now and flip the script. Okay, so you, Don, are the host of Business Done Differently, and you can ask me one question. Uh, why baseball? Wow, I've actually never been asked that question, and that's, that's fascinating to me. That's going to make me go back. Thank you for that. I started playing when I was five years old. My, my father you know, introduced it to me. I fell in love with it. He actually bought a baseball facility in Massachusetts so I could play year-round, and that was everything for me. And then I went to college to play baseball. I went to Wofford College, a small D1 school in Spartanburg. 
And literally, that was my whole goal, to play professional. And I tore everything in my shoulder, and that ended it. And at that point, I was like, what am I going to do? And I had opportunities to go into coaching. And then I got an email about an internship with a team in Spartanburg that no longer exists. And I took it because I just said, hey, why don't I see what the front office is like? And I fell in love with it. And within two months as an intern, I got offered the job as a general manager of a team outside of North Carolina at 23 years old. And I didn't fall in love with baseball then because I realized I loved playing baseball, but I hated watching baseball. As crazy as that sounds. So then I saw the big challenge. And I think everybody looks for that big, huge goal. I said, there's a fundamental problem with baseball. To many, it's long, slow, and boring. How can I make it the most fun game in the world? And so at 23 years old, I started tackling that big goal and to create baseball fans. And so I never even think, why baseball? Could I do this with hockey or basketball? Yes, but I think baseball is such a slower game that it gives an opportunity to really bring out the creative juices. So I appreciate you asking that question. It's been the platform to create fun. That's a great question, Doug. I appreciate but, I, but, but I love it. So when you were saying, what did I want to create? It wasn't profit. It wasn't this. It wasn't, I want to create baseball fans. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and if you create baseball fans, all those other things happen, right? Profit occurs. Talent is able to come. But you said, this is what I want to create. And if you really kind of reduce it, um, that's I love it. Thank you. That's perfect. You know what my favorite moment is? And I'll share this. It's, it's, it's at the end of the games. And it's after the game where we have our staff, our players in full uniform come outside the gates. And we have our pep band on a stage. And they're playing music, sing-along music, dance music. For 30 minutes after the game, no one wants to leave. And the players are signing autographs. The staff's taking pictures. People are hugging, high fives, selfies. And it's an unbelievable moment where I just don't want to pinch myself and say, wow, this is, this is something that we've created and our staff gets to feel it. Our players get to feel it. And so, you know, when you think about it, I'm not thinking about baseball at all. And those 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I'm thinking about bringing people together and having the time in their life. And I think no matter what job you do, you can create that opportunity. I love it. I love it. <laughs> all right. We want to go to some lightning rounds. You, have, you still have some time, right? I want to go to some lightning yes. rounds. All right. You got it. All right. Beautiful. We're about, you got me going. So you saw you got me passionate, Don. I could fire it up. So that's why I, I, I jump into that. But here we go. You add value. I think when people think about um, great teams, great authors, great speakers, they give you more than you even expected. And they go above and beyond. You did that in this book, Great Teams. I read the 16 characters. I was like, this is amazing. And then you actually had examples from all the different coaches, professional athletes, leaders, giving you tips, which in itself pays for pays for the knowledge of the book. I want to say, what one stood from you? Because you gave these great takeaways from the winners. What leadership lessons stood out for you from you know the greats you mentioned at the end of the book? Probably the one that I that I that stood out that I remember. I like such a wow moment for me was Tom Izzo at Michigan State um, talking to me about how he um, uh, how he. When he begins each season, he sits down with the players, with each player, and he actually hands them a four-by-six card, um, and he asks them to write down their goals. What do they want to achieve in the next year? What would, if, 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 if the goals on that card were to be able – they could say at the end of the year that they achieved them, this would have been a great year for them. And then the next day he makes them come back. And, uh, and he said invariably, you know, they all think he's going to share the card with their moms – so they always write, you know, progress toward graduation because that's what they think they're supposed to say. 
And he says, now, I, what I want is what you really want to – what do you want to do to be successful this year? And, and he said, invariably, somebody says, um, I want to be the leading scorer in the Big Ten, right? And, uh, and so he'll take the card. He'll look at the athlete and at the player. And he'll say, you know, by the way, last year you averaged 1.6 points per game, right? And this year you want to lead the Big Ten in scoring. Yes, sir, I do. That really means something to you. Yes, sir, it does. Now, um, you've never led the Big Ten in scoring. You've never even led our team in scoring. Yes, sir, you're right. He says, but so if that's what you want, what you're asking me to do. Now, I have coached people who have led the Big Ten in scoring. So I know what it takes. Are you, if what you're saying is that that matters to you, I want to make sure that you know that when I push you this year, it's because I want as best I can to help you meet the goals you've listed here on your card. But you need, is this really what you want? Because if it is, let's go to work. And it allows, it, it allows you to ask those that are working for you. You know, I love your future resume thing, but it allows them to say, yeah, this is important to me. Push me to make it happen. And I'm on board. I love that because for me, that said to me, you know what, that's a problem. Too often I'm as a leader sitting down and defining what everybody should be capable of in the, in the next year. And I'm maybe totally missing something that they would love to try to achieve that would be great for all of us. And so how do I, how do I do that? How do I make that? How do I get the most from them? And I love that example. I think it's great because it's, you know, he's getting permission from the athlete. I mean, if every coach gets permission to push someone to the next level, I mean, it's, you mentioned also that the De La Salle Spartans and the commitment cards and the commitment partners. I mean, yep. every, every organization should, should do that. It's, it's, yeah. It's that, that, entire, that willingness to say, you know, what are you committed to? What, what, you know, what are you on board for? And, um, and, and a lot of people will give you a lot of stuff that they really aren't on board for. But if you can really, if you could force the ones that, if, 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 if a fraction of them give you what they, what, they're, what they say they're signing up for, it's amazing what you can achieve. Love it. I've got two more questions, and then I want to go into our final four quickly. But I, I loved the Bobby Bowden, you know, think about winning. And I yesterday had a fan come into my office, and he said, my life changed when I started waking up every morning and saying, my goal, my purpose is to help people win and help people win every single day. That blew me away. I'd love to know, well, what's winning for you, Don? So winning for me is um, – I, I, it's, it's funny you ask this question because I, I started defining this a few years ago. Um, winning for me is to believe that every day I found someone new and different to inspire, to think more broadly about their potential um, than they did before we interacted. So if that's in my office, if that's, at my, if that's with my children – if that's wherever it is, right, um, I want to think every day, you know, did I today get someone to think, uh, to, to, to see something additional in themselves that before the day began, before my interaction with them began, that they didn't, that they, that they were, that they didn't have their mind wrapped around. And if I can do that every day, I win. Keywords inspire there. All right, now I'm going to ask this question. You've interviewed hundreds of people, going going back to the days of Sports Illustrated. I believe if you want better answers of business, you need to ask better questions. What are some of the best questions you're still asking to this day? So maybe my favorite question to ask uh, someone is, 
I try to always think about who it was that had some some really incredible influence in their life. Um, as I'm as I'm getting to know people, I try to find out who's had great influence in them. And then I ask them, if you were to go get a chance to sit with that person again today, um, uh, what kind of things would you say to them? Like, what would you, what, when's the last time you spoke to that person? Sometimes there are people that, that you can't speak with, they've passed away. Sometimes there are people you just have lost touch with. But I try to challenge people all the time to ask and answer, who would you go look for if you could to say something and what would you say? And when I ask that question, it's fascinating. More than, I mean, I could, we could do a whole other podcast on some of the answers people have given me. But, but in that process, I've ended up with some athletes in some really incredible places where they've sat down to either say thank you or to say words to someone who changed their life who long ago um, they'd lost touch with. And the reconnection or the, the ability to kind of deliver on that message changed everything for them. That's fascinating. Don, you know, you just added another question to you. We just had our, we we're going to go to the final four, but you just added another question because you added an amazing question there. Who's your person? Uh, I mean, if I could go back to someone, I, you know, my father passed away uh, uh, 12 years ago. But he challenged me when I was a young, when I was a young writer, when I was just coming out of college, he challenged me to begin asking every athlete I ever met or every leader I ever met to name one habit that, that they believe separated them from everybody they competed against. And, and, and then, and what fascinated me was that those habits had nothing to do with physical skill or strength. It was almost all about mental and emotional discipline, right? And going on that journey, 2,500 people answered that question for me over the next 25 years of my career, changed everything. And I don't know that my father would have ever guessed that that's what that would ultimately become. And I would love for him, uh, I would love to sit down and share with him what I learned. Wow, amazing. The impact that he had on you. Unbelievable. All right, we'll quickly go through the final four, Don. What is one thing you've done to stand out in business and in life? Um... Learn to become a better storyteller. I think uh, the ability to tell great stories separates the good from the great, and that's really been my. That's been my. It, it is. Uh, it's. It's. It's my developed superpower. I work really hard on, on telling great stories. So powerful. Now, if you were to give advice to someone just starting out to stand out in business and in life, what would you tell them? Um, go immediately to the sales department and learn how to sell. Interesting. I love that. It's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you go or what you end up doing in life. Um, selling will be an important piece of what will become your success. Learn how to sell. Ooh, love it. Beautiful. Final two here. Best advice you've ever received. Um, John Wooden talking to me about doing a regular measurement of the people I give my time to and making sure that I'm surrounding myself with people who are headed in the right direction and not just randomly giving my time to anybody who asks. Smart. Well, thank you for giving time here too, Don. <laughs> and, and finally, how do you want to be remembered? Um, you know what? I, I really don't care about anything other than being a great dad. If I could, if, if, if at the end of the day I get to be a good dad, I'm good. Right. I mean, you know, cause I figure everything else in life uh, comes and goes, but they're, 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 I have my greatest influence at home and that's where, uh, 
I, I hope that my influence it carries its greatest weight. Wow, I love that. You know, we bring Baby Maverick here to the stadium every single day. So I think our staff's dealing with it pretty well, but I can't agree with you more about being a dad and that impact. So, wow. Well, Don, thank you so much for sharing so much today and the impact that you've had on myself and our team. You really have done so much and influence more than you even know. And love for people who are listening to know more about you, get some more information, check out these great books. Where can they learn more and connect with you? Yeah, so... Um, uh, DonYeager.com is the easiest place. Um, you know, like you, I'm big into regular motivation. I have a daily quote that I share with people that can sign up for it there, do a blog for Forbes every week, um, write books, do speaking. It's all there, but, uh, but more, but it's just, if they would start to contact, I'd love to, I'm, I'm, I do selected uh, opportunities with these podcasts because I love getting a chance to learn more about other audiences. So thank you for letting me learn, learn with, uh, with you and with yours. The pleasure was all mine. And I'll tell you, you, you live your brand and what you stand for. And after I sent you a note, you wrote right back and uh, really shows the character. And uh, I can't tell you, thank you not for being on the show. Jesse, I appreciate you, buddy. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Business Done Differently. Our goal is simple to inspire you to think different, have fun, and stand out in business and in life. For more ways you can stand out in your business, visit findyouryellowtux.com and you can get the Yellow Tux Handbook for free with the six steps to stand out directly from the Find Your Yellow Tux book. Finally, a big shout out to Podcast Pilot for producing the show and making all the magic happen. For questions, ideas, and feedback, I'd love to hear from you. So shoot a note to jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.